they found that the kids learn jingles. Like they could sing the Oscar Mayer Weaver ah, song. Ah, right. They could sing beer commercial songs. They could sing all these songs for commercials. So they wanted to have that same commercial energy on the show. And soon you will sing about a silent E. Exactly. And that's, that's <laughs> the thing. Jim Henson came from a world of commercials. So who better to sell the alphabet to children than Jim Henson? Episode 20, Sesame Street is Autistic. Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast. Each episode, we dive deep into autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture, and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe. Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your hosts, Dr. Angela Loria, the linguistic autistic. And licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of Autistica. Autistica. Hey, Angela. Matt. If you could be any Muppet, which Muppet would you be? Easy question, Snuffleupagus. Oh, Snuffleupagus is a good one. Hey, hey, uh, I don't know if it's actually a Muppet. Does it count as a Muppet? It's like a full set. It's like a special Muppet, but Snuffleupagus was definitely my homeboy. Also liked Alice, the little baby sister, Snuffleupagus. Uh, but Snuffy. I had a large Snuffleupagus collection. Snuffy could move at light speed when the, the moment took him, because as soon as any human adult was around, he was out of there. Yeah, people didn't even know he existed. Some people didn't even believe in Snuffleupagus, but Big Bird did. Of course, Big Bird mm -hmm. is a good friend. It's true. I, are we talking about Sesame Street today? Because I got to tell you, if we are, I'm excited. We are, we are, because... Honestly, I think that Sesame Street is one of the great human inventions of all time because it, it comes from just this altruistic place of wanting to teach, wanting to share, wanting to promote equality. And it did so in the most unlikely of ways. And it ties directly into the autistic community. Uh, so I know of no autism connections, but definitely the social justice angle behind Sesame Street is amazing. So I feel like there might be some little interplay there. I'm, I'm smelling it. Oh, very much so. Yeah, because in 1969, uh, there was this recognition that there, there was a great inequality in the world, especially in the U.S. There, there were a lot. Uh, there was a lot of racial tension. Uh, the, the civil rights movement was uh, going full strong. It was right after Vietnam. A this lot is of when people were protesting Mr. Rogers for washing a black man's feet on national TV. Exactly. Exactly. Wild, wild days over at PBS. Exactly. And there there was a there was a realization among certain peoples that we will talk about in a moment that the world might be able to be made a better place through the use of TV. And there is this guy, John Stone. And John Stone had worked in the entertainment industry for years, and he was hugely disillusioned by television in general, because especially kids TV, kids TV existed to pacify kids. It irritated the crap out of adults because it was really, really bland and it commercial, right? He, he was described by his children as being, quote, very black and white, no oh. gray. <laughs> you were either a good guy or a bad guy. 
And this came to activism and his feelings about the world, including the Vietnam War. And he wanted to do something good. And then he was introduced to this woman named Joan Gans Cooney. She, she marched with Martin Luther King. Uh, she, she was a major, major activist. She was involved in the civil rights movement. She liked working with inner city kids. And they got to talking and you know, they said, you know, it would be great if we had a TV show that could you know, make a difference about this. Because again, most kids TV shows at the time, Howdy Doody, uh, Captain Kangaroo, mm. uh, oh man, what else? Uh, others, uh, Bozo the Clown, I guess, were yeah, all yeah. centered around, you know, suburban white kids. Right. And the, these, these inner city black kids, especially, were left out in the cold because their parents were working all the time they, they sat at home with the TV and they were, the studies had shown that they were already behind when they started school and due to a lack of financial resources, they would get further and further behind each year. So the theory was, what if we had this ability to give these kids a boost before they got into school to put them on an even playing field? So they wanted to go for equality. And, they and found, now at this point, do they have the Muppet idea? Like, do they have oh, the puppet idea? Or are they just like, let's invent something? Let's invent something because nothing like this had ever been done before. Right. Okay. So they, they found Lloyd Morissette, a psychologist at the Carnegie Foundation, also concerned about socioeconomic uh, economic differences for inner city kids, specifically inner city black kids. So they all agreed, yes, this is the way to do this. We really need to get this together. So they, they started finding ways. They went to, uh, let's see here, uh, what is now PBS, but uh, it was not called PBS back in the oh. day. Uh uh, I can't, uh, I lost my note uh, what it was, but but anyway, PBS Public Broadcasting, and they found that it, uh, they wanted to do 130 hours of TV a year, which back in the day would cost $8 million. Today, $69 million. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And they said, we need to build this from the ground up. We need to make it entertaining. We need, we need, uh, human, we need human adults of all ethnicities living together, working together in an accessible area. They decided to specifically design a set around the, an inner city block, right? Because they wanted to have all these people living and working together and playing together in an area that the kids would be familiar with. Mr. And Hooper then, and Maria and Oscar the Grouch and it exactly. was all together. Exactly. And everybody looked different. Everybody came from a different background, but everybody was a giant family on the street. Mm -hmm. And they decided, you know who would really work well with this? Because we've got the TV professionals, we've got the educators, we've got the psychologists, we've got all these people. We really, really need some radical hippies. Yes. And well, it was 1969. So. Exactly. Exactly. And they said, you know, who's the most radical of all hippies? Jim Henson. So they invited Jim Henson to a meeting and everybody's sitting around dressed up in their suits. And Jim Henson is sitting back in the corner, completely silent, long hair. And they're like, who's that with the long hair and the long beard and all that kind of stuff? And, oh, that's Jim Henson. So he was like, yeah, I think that uh, we could make some Muppets to do this because uh, again, so before Sesame Street, The Muppets was considered adult comedy. Uh, oh. Before before Sesame Street, uh, The Muppets were essentially South Park. So wait, so Jim Henson was already doing The Muppets. Yes. But yes. it was like weird hippie comedy show, The Daily Show for 1969. Exactly. He got around uh, 15 minutes, every, uh, uh, start off at five minutes, but later grew uh, on a local cable, or not local cable, uh, on a local station and was able to have puppets lip syncing to popular music. Then he went on other shows and the Tonight Show, Jimmy Dean Show. Like a ventriloquist act. Exactly. Exactly. So he he was uh, he got commercial work uh, with Wilkins Coffee, where these characters blew each other up. He he did all this edgy stuff for back in the day. He was known as an avant garde artist, and he said, "You know, this would be good because they said 
They wanted to make a show that captivated kids' attention and did not let it go. And they actually had this study going, right? So they would show the kids stuff from Sesame Street, and they would also have a slide projector going that made loud clicks. And they would see what the kids were paying attention to. If they paid attention to the show, it worked. If they paid attention to the clicks of the slide projector, they weren't paying attention. Brilliant. So the, the thing about Jim Henson was they wanted him to come in and do these segments with puppets and they would have segments with cartoons and these would all be the commercials quote-unquote commercials selling letters selling numbers selling reading and the kids would learn they found that the kids learn jingles like they could sing the oscar meyer weaver song Ah, right they could sing beer commercial songs they could sing all these songs for commercials so they wanted to have that same commercial energy on the show. And soon you will sing about a silent E. Exactly. And that's <laughs> that's the thing. Jim Henson came from a world of commercials. So who better to sell the alphabet to children than Jim Henson? All right. I'm in. So, so he came up. Uh, by this time, Rolf and Kermit already existed. They were already doing the, sh- the circuit. So... He came up with other characters like Big Bird, a full body Muppet, just like Snuffleupagus. Yeah. Uh, he came up, uh, they came up with Count Von Count, who uh, is like, uh, like all good vampires. Uh, he had uh, erythomania, which is a, a tendency that vampires have to count things. That's if you run thing. into a, yeah, if you run into a vampire and you throw a whole bunch of uh, toothpicks on the ground, they have to count it because of this erythomania. So one, uh, one toothpick. <laughs> exactly. And uh, he, he created, they created Grover and Bert and Ernie, they, the cookie monster. Telly was originally the telly monster, a monster obsessed with television that had uh, TV antennas sticking out of his head and spiral eyeballs. But yeah. uh, they, they got rid of that after a year and he just became the poster child for anxiety. Oscar yeah. was originally orange and essentially a homeless man, but then he became a full-on grouch and Obviously. became a yeah. And all the characters grew into these these things that kids could see about themselves and see about other people and learn about differences and accept differences, and it was great. And he and Frank Oz. He and Frank Oz are one of the all-time great pairings uh, in comedy, in drama, in anything. They are Kermit and Miss Piggy. They are Bert and Ernie. Mm. They, 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 they do this fantastic back and forth together. And at Jim Henson's funeral, Frank Oz broke down in tears because he was talking about how gentle, you know, Jim Henson was, how they worked well together, how he was a mentor. He took uh, Frank Oz under his wing when Frank was 19. And Frank came from a family of puppeteers. Jim was a puppeteer. Uh, They started working on Sesame Street. They did the Muppets. Uh, Jim Henson gave Frank Oz his break into directing with the Muppets Take Manhattan. And now Frank Oz is one of like the big directors. Uh, Of course, Frank Oz also did Yoda which is one of my all-time favorites. But at Jim Henson's funeral, Frank uh, said, you know, there's this story. One time right before Christmas, we were working on Saturday Night Live because for a while, Saturday Night Live had a regular Muppet feature. Oh, and, did not know that. You okay. know, it only lasted one year because they the, the Muppet cast did not blend well with the, the Saturday Night Live cast. Okay. And uh, right after that, that's when they got The Muppet Show. And The Muppet Show became like the most popular worldwide series ever. Mm. But, but anyway, Frank Oz said it was right before Christmas. And Jim says, hey, Frank, I just got this camera. And Frank says, oh, that's a nice camera. And he said, and Jim says, you know what would be great? And Frank says, what? He says, if you go in there, and uh, you take off all your clothes, and I take a whole bunch of pictures of you. And Frank says, what? And he says, no, no, you got to trust me, it'll be great. And Frank Oz says, really? What? So anyway, Frank Oz, uh, Jim says, all right, go over there, uh, hide your junk, and look surprised. And Frank at the funeral says, this was not hard for me to do. So uh, he, he covers his junk, he looks very surprised. Jim Henson takes a picture of him and he says, all right, put your clothes on. I'll see you later. And he runs off. And Frank is like, I wonder what the hell that was. So anyway, a month later for a Christmas present, uh, 
Jim Henson has sculpted him a bust of Bert, right? And the Bert's eyes are hollowed out. And when you look inside Bert, you see naked Frank Oz surprised. And because the whole point of this was that Bert in Jim's eyes was the most raw that Frank Oz could possibly be. Mm, okay. Now I know everything I need to know about Frank Oz. <laughs> exactly. Because at his core, Frank Oz is Bert. Uh, mm. At his core, uh, Jim Henson is Ernie, but he is also Dr. Teeth. He is also Kermit. He is also, uh, but, but that's the thing. Bert is a very, very personal character for Frank Oz. And Bert is the most autistic character that uh, in media. Let's, let's do it. I just started doing it in my head. I got the monotone voice. Oh, the monotone the fl- voice. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, flat, because he's got the unibrow that's always flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ernie uh, always comes up with these crazy schemes. Ernie, uh, oh, and, and puns because, you know, uh, 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 Bert will say, how do you smell? And Ernie will say, with your nose, Bert. With your nose, Bert. And uh, when Bert gets flustered, he he flaps his arms around because, you know, he's got the little spindly puppet arms. He's got the special interest. He's very, very intensely interested in bottle caps, in paper clips, and pigeons. Pigeons! Everything. Pigeons, animals. Oh, exactly. he loves those pigeons. And, and whereas Ernie definitely has his rubber ducky, Ernie has different interests every week. He'll bring in a banjo one week, a fruit hat next week, a llama the next week. All this stuff throws Bert off every single time because all Bert wants to do is sit in silence, read his book. He has very bland food because he likes oatmeal. Yeah. Mm. Everything about Bert is very, very autistic. And that's an interesting thing because if this is the rawest Frank Oz, if this is the scared, naked Frank Oz, maybe Frank Oz is one of us. But Bert definitely is. They never wow. come out and say that Bert is definitely autistic. But again, this was back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, right. You wouldn't expect that. But it's the representation in the culture of like, oh, you're going to meet people in your neighborhood who get pretty into pigeons and paper clips. Like you're going to meet people with special interests. You're going to meet people who maybe don't show emotion the way that you might expect. Exactly, exactly. so that representation, if you're a kid or maybe even a parent or a teacher watching Sesame Street, that representation, I think, is so important. Very much so. And and when Bert interacts with other characters, when Bert interacts with, you know, Ernie or the Count or the kids on Sesame Street or the adults, you know, they accept him for who he is. Uh, and they they know who he is. They know that he loves paper clips. There's a one time on a Sesame Street Christmas special when Bert and Ernie essentially do the gift of the Magi, because mm. Bert wants to give Ernie a soap dish for Rubber Ducky, and he trades Mister Hooper his paper clip collection, the thing he values most in the entire world. And Ernie trades Mister Hooper his Rubber Ducky to get a box for Bert's paper clips, the thing he loves most in the entire world. And of course. Mr. Hooper shows up at their apartment later on and says, hey, guys, I got you both gifts. Here's your paper clip collection and your rubber ducky. Because, you know, it's yeah. Sesame Street and you take care of everybody. But that's the thing. I mean, you know what Bird is about. He tells you unapologetically, I love pigeons. I love bottle clap- caps. I love paper clips. He will. There are segments, and I have shown my son these segments because I love classic Sesame Street for this reason, where Bert will go into great detail about his bottle cap collection, about the rare bottle caps, about the shiny bottle caps, about the Give rare... Yeah, yeah. He, he goes on about this, and it's fantastic. And again... This is the kind of thing that you don't get, like, again, even if you were to watch Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory, one time they referred to the Mattel Millennium Falcon. Mattel never had the license for Star Wars. Come on, come on, Sheldon. That's the thing. And they, they never had him go into these interests because, of course, they're written by people who don't have special interests. Right. They're written by people who don't understand it. They say, oh, yeah, he's nerdy. 
So they right. write about that. But must, again, be Met- must be Mattel collections. That's exactly. what nerdy people do. That's the thing. And when writing about Bert, when expressing Bert, when playing Bert, it's raw, it's naked, and it is it is us. Okay, and wait, I is- want to pull one more in. Yes. So can we pull in the LGBTQIA angle? That is an interesting thing. And that is one of the things I looked up because one of the writers for Sesame Street was gay and specifically wrote Bert and Ernie as being gay. Because uh, he said that Bert and Ernie reminded him of him and his partner. Uh, when asked about it, Frank Oz said, well, I didn't play it that way. I, I can understand where it would come across, but I don't want to misrepresent and take away from that representation since I'm not part of the community. Right. And I don't want to disappoint people in that regard. But if you see it, that's great. Yeah. And like, here's the thing for me is like, they are primary partners, whether they're romantic or not, like it may be a romantic, it may be asexual, but they are life partners. They do life together. And that to me is queer culture. And that's the thing. Uh, Frank Oz had said point blank and broke down crying at Jim Henson's funeral because he truly did love Jim Henson. Jim Henson truly did love him. Uh, it may not have been in a sexual way, but it was definitely their creative life partner mm. situation. They definitely did love each other as human beings, as men. They loved each other. And mm. that was one of the reasons why the relationship between Kermit and Piggy worked out. And uh, yeah, uh, 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 who did Frank? Uh, oh, Animal and uh, uh, Dr. Teeth. Uh, yeah, th- this is the reason they worked so well together, so long together, because they genuinely did love each other. Mm. So Bert and Ernie, they do love each other. They are, they, they, they live together. They are an extended partnership. They've been partners since the 60s. Right. Yeah. Still hanging so, tight. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, it's definitely representation. And that's the thing. So Sesame Street has a long history of representation of marginalized people uh, across all sorts of demographics. And this brings us into 2017 with Julia. Oh, and is that the when they brought in the autistic character? Yes. And okay. uh, there's uh, we'll include a lot of links to this uh, uh, in the show notes. But uh, so Stacy Gordon is the puppeteer for uh, Julia. She is a Phoenix-based puppeteer. Her son is autistic. Okay. She used to be a, a therapist for autistic kids. And as we know from genetics, uh, if you have an autistic kid, mm. you have an autistic parent. And she worked with autistic kids. She has an autistic kid. And Julia, they worked on Julia for three years with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, uh, uh, ASAN. Uh, ASAN. I pronounce it ASAN. Other people pronounce it ASAN. I I don't know if I can get ASAN in my head, so I'm just going to pronounce it ASAN and get it wrong. So uh, ASAN, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, is composed of autistic people who so are great. self-advocates. So and what a great they, name. It all comes exactly. together. Yeah. And, and they work with Sesame Street Workshop. They work with Children's Television Workshop. This think tank of psychologists and sociologists and teachers and television executives for three years to create Julia. Uh, they, they created first books. They created web content. They created all this stuff ramping up to Julia's appearance on the show. And uh, when they finally introduced her, they uh, uh, Alan, one of the adults on the show, introduces Julia to Big Bird. And Big Bird says, I don't know if she likes me. She's not looking at me. And Alan explains, oh, no, she's, uh, I think uh, Julia's uh, stated age is like four or five, right? So she she gets easily overwhelmed by loud noises. She has a stuffed bunny named Fluffer. She is she doesn't make eye contact. She does. They develop special arms for the puppet to do hand flapping. Oh, <gasps> wow! So that. they they specifically well, they specifically created this this great character with all this input from actually autistic characters from a puppeteer who has great personal experience with autism. And again, 
as we frequently note on here, it can be it can be very dangerous for people to come out as autistic as adults because you might face prejudice, you might face discrimination, you might face people saying you're not autistic like my child and therefore criticize you. So uh, again, there might be good reasons for. Uh, her to not come out as autistic, but to say, yeah, I've got an autistic kid. I was a therapist for autistic kids. She's got the the inner workings of autistic people. And when I see Julia, her echolalia reminds me of my son. Her overstimulation reminds me of my son. It is a genuinely good representation of autistic children. Wow. Whereas Bert is a genuinely good representation of autistic adults. An autistic adult. That's so, so good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Julia, uh, Elmo likes building block towers and then knocking them down. Uh, Julia likes to line up her blocks in a row to build a wall. They both play with toy cars. Julia likes to spin the wheels on her cars over and over again. Me too. Uh, they've got uh, this song. Uh, where is the song? Is this uh, the I'll, amazing song? Yes, yes, yes. And it's a the video of it, and we can link to that too, uh, has all autistic kids in the video interacting with Elmo and Julia and Abby Cadabby, and they're all all these autistic kids just doing their thing and interacting with the Muppets and having a great time, and it's great. I, I really want to play a part of that song, but whenever I do it, it doesn't sound good. So if you don't hear a clip, right now of the amazing song check out the show notes um you gotta listen to it we'll we'll drop it in there so uh i i I really love it i think it's the lyrics are amazing every kid is an original we're all one of a kind there's no one else quite like us that you're ever gonna find and that's what makes us wonderful we're different as can be but in some real important ways we're still the same you see Yeah, yeah, it's very, very good. And it was part of a big coordination uh, to to give representation in a very, very positive way from autistic people to autistic people to parents of autistic kids to kids who might have autistic friends. And it was just unbelievable. And like key factor, the chorus is don't change a thing, you are amazing. As opposed to, please start acting more like neurotypical people so I'm more comfortable. You're amazing. Yeah. Which was the, you're I always got the, you're amazing. It was just the, you're like, you're so amazing. And if you just fixed your personality, think of how far you could go. Was the message I got. (laughs) We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories, and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you want to know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic. Check out his website at mattlowerylpp.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that LPP, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to mattlowerylpp.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt. And and this leads into the next part, because for after years and years and years of partnership with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, uh, so, so uh, th- this actually goes back a, a little further. So for years, PBS has been financing uh, Sesame Street, right? Yeah. For years, you see these uh, pledge drives for PBS Mm -hmm. and you say, we can't make Sesame street without you. It's a very expensive show. We really, really need your donations because they don't have actual advertising. Right. Right. And so when Elmo came on the scene, uh, they realized, Oh, Elmo merch really, really sells. So there was a much bigger focus on Elmo. Uh, There was a much bigger focus on the merch. There is so, but the merchandise supported Sesame street. So, at one point a few years ago, uh, they they said, you know, perhaps we could get some more uh, money from other sponsors. And they they someone came to them and said, 
I have money for you. That that organization was Autism Speaks. See, and I thought it was Darth Vader for a minute. Yes, exactly. Okay, (laughs) same thing. (laughs) So, uh, Autism Speaks. Okay, hard to turn down money. We're making good TV shows. Should we take their money? They needed the money for it, and they said, hey, I see you've got an autistic character. (laughs) Yeah. Would you like some money to run ads for our 100-day project? And uh, so the ASAN See Amazing project was great, but again, not bringing in as much money as... So Autism Speaks, for those of you... So are you saying Autism uh, Self-Advocacy Network doesn't have as much money as Autism Speaks? Autism (laughs) Speaks uh, was funded by an ex-NBC executive, a neurotypical person, who wanted to cure the autism. Mm. And if, if you get a chance, again, we can link to these in the show notes. One of their most famous ads is I Am Autism which yeah. features autistic children on a playground alone with an over with a voiceover that says i have autism i make sure every day you wake up you will cry mm-hmm. i will take away your family i will leave you uh, alone don't and lose your child to autism exactly mm-hmm. they made a short film in which a woman talks about uh being so frustrated with her autistic child, she wanted to drive off a bridge and kill herself and her autistic child. Uh, while the autistic child plays in the background behind her oh, as nice. she's saying this. And she says that the only reason that she didn't murder her child and herself was that she had a neurotypical child at home that still needed care. Oh, well... That and, sounds good. And th- this is not something that they are ashamed of. This is not something that they hid. This was a short film that they nominated for an award at Cannes. It's for, uh, you know, people with empathy. Yeah. Because you watch that, and if you're somebody with theory of mind, then you feel empathy, and you're like, I see why she would want to kill her child. It makes yeah. perfect sense. I have so, empathy. And, and <laughs> these people are big supporters of ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis. Uh, applied Behavior Analysis was invented by Ivar Lovas, a man who said that autistic people are, quote, People in the classical sense in that we have eyes, ears, nose, and a mouth, but not people in the psychological sense. So he used a series of electric shocks and 40 hours a week of behavioral therapy to condition autistic children into, quote, becoming more normal. So ABA is a $1.8 billion a year industry. Autism Speaks is a big proponent of ABA. They had ties to the Judge Rotenberg uh, Center. The Judge Rotenberg Center is a place that still today straps uh, these uh, graduated electronic devices, GEDs, to autistic children and zaps autistic children with more electricity than a taser, a, a police taser. Whenever they stim, whenever they fidget, whenever they flap, whenever they talk out of turn. And one time uh, there was an incident where uh, someone called in a prank call and said that this kid was acting out and they should shock him. They ended up shocking him 17 times based on a prank call. Uh, And there's a big lawsuit going on between the Judge Rotenberg Center and the Neuroclastic for talking about exactly this. But again, it's all found. uh, You can find it all on the Internet, all sources there. Uh, it's, it's very easy to find if you just use those keywords I just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, Autism Speaks is a big proponent of this. They get a lot of kickbacks from these organizations. They get a lot of money from this. And just uh, like, not, I'm not playing devil's advocate, but just to put a slightly different spin, if you're listening and you're not in this conversation, this comes from a place of like, it is hard to manage my life with my autistic child. I would like them to be normal. I would like to fix them. And so parents are looking for solutions. Like this money is coming from parents. Yes. A lot of it. I mean, pharmaceutical companies too, who are just like, make this misery go away, make my child eat all sorts of food and speak in the way I want them to speak or communicate in the way I want them to communicate. And it is a serious lack of education on a lot of parents, but I don't think it comes from a place of uh, initially, 
but for the uneducated, I do think it comes from a place of love. Like they love the idea that they had for their kid and their kid is maybe different than that idea. So they're not like evil people. They are evil people, but they're not evil people. They're people trying to fix something they see as a problem. Well, that's the thing. I don't think that the people who listen to Autism Speaks are evil, but there is definitely money to be made in a cure culture. Because right. if you have a problem and have a solution, you say, I am the only one who can fix it, you get money. Right. And, and ultimately, is, pharmaceuticals are yeah. behind this and insurance companies and lawyers exactly. and they smell blood in the water because parents don't know any better and they're just yeah. like Googling for solutions. I can't tell you the number of times I'm doing research for our episodes yeah. and I end up on an Autism Speaks or Autism Speaks adjacent website, Facebook page, parent blog. And it's a, there, it is a tsunami of content out there yes. that promotes the idea that autistic people should be fixed. Yeah. And this is the big difference between the autistic community and the autism community. Mm. Because the autistic community is comprised of autistic people, autistic families, and people who, again, like us, see autism as a culture in something that is to be celebrated rather than fixed. The autism culture tries to separate autism from the person and say, for instance, uh, one, of the, one of the things about the 100-day kit that you can download from their website, it says, quote, when you find yourself arguing with your spouse, be careful not to get mad at each other when it is really the autism that has you so upset and angry. Because it, 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 it so says, the autism is a being. It's like my chapstick. Thing. Yeah, it's I, the autism that has yeah, you angry. It, it's like a gremlin that lives in your child's brain that mm. is to be defeated Ooh, instead maybe we of to try be understood. Exorcism. Well, oh, so that's a thing. Uh, okay. They they advertise a lot of ABA to exercise it, a lot of pseudoscientific, quote, autism diets. For a long time, uh, they also uh, kind of supported this woman who said that you should feed your child bleach or give your child bleach enemas because mm -hmm. uh, they she said that it's gut bacteria that cause the autism. And if you feed your child bleach, it'll kill the autistic gut bacteria. I literally uh, don't know what you mean by for a while because I have been seeing autism causes gut like at Facebook is plastering me with ads yeah. for something. They're going to fix me by fixing my gut bacteria. And I well, they still do that. They just don't. Facebook just doesn't allow her to sell bleach to parents to feed their uh, children anymore. Okay, now, so she, no, now she no, sells no. it to the cure COVID. Go, right. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, okay. So Sesame Street needs money. Yeah. Autism Speaks has money and they've got this great idea. We have this hundred days. Is it cure your child's autism in a hundred days? What are we doing in a hundred days? Well, it's like steps. Like they say, you should go get an evaluation. You could, should set up ABA. You should talk. And some of it is actually good advice. Like you should look for therapy options. And again, you should find someone who is autism affirming. You should look more. Uh, and honestly, if your child is autistic, you should probably get uh, checked out yourself Diagnosed because yourself. this is the way. But but again, some of it is good. Like find, uh, you know, resources, talk to other parents of autistic kids. That's some good advice. The broken clock is right twice a day. Hmm. Other advice uh, is to hold a funeral for your child and go through the five stages of grief because they say that the child that you knew and expected is dead. So they they say that your neurotypical child will never be the person you want them to be. Yeah, uh, because this hypothetical child that you had built yourself up in your mind, that's not going to be it. So you should grieve it instead of uh, just saying, oh, this is news. Funeral for themselves. Like nothing, like nothing you need to look at for yourself. Just like, yeah. sorry, your kid died. The kid you imagine died. And, and this again... My perspective on it, every time when I diagnose a kid uh, as autistic, I talk to the parents about, you know, this runs in families and there's these traits and these traits and these traits. And again, autistic kids grow up to be autistic adults. And there's a lot of parents who say, well, I did that. I did that. I did that. Am I autistic? And I'm like, we can see. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, there's a lot of autistic parents that 
there's a lot of parents that come out of that meeting saying, hey, being autistic is pretty cool. I really like being autistic. Right. And I'm like, yeah, the, exactly. It can be such a healing journey for families and breaking generational trauma. And I mean, obviously the double empathy research that we have wouldn't have come. If, there's so much there's so many amazing discoveries that have come from parents whose kids were diagnosed to then figure out, oh, that's what my whole life is about. Exactly. And that, that level of awareness is very, very important. Uh, in contrast, Autism Speaks says, quote, while autism is usually a lifelong condition, instead of saying, yeah, you're going to, because they equate being diagnosable as being autistic. And they equate learning how to mask as, quote, curing the autism. I just made that connection. Yeah, because that's the thing about ABA. They think that they can cure the autism by convincing a child to mask enough. And even with electric shocks, if that's exactly. what it takes. Yeah. Exactly. And th- they say some autistic people may have a bit more control than others, and many don't want a cure. Because again, if, if you accept us for who we are, we don't need a cure. We might need support. We might need understanding, but we don't need to be cured of who we are. This is, and this is another big thing because there's a lot of people who say, my young child is much more severe than you because, well, I'm an adult. I'm 43 years old. I have a lot more self-control than a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't flap my arms a lot because, again, I'm old and I'm tired. I don't flap <laughs> as much. But it doesn't make me any less autistic. And I I only gained real success when I learned to work with my neurology instead of against it. Mm -hmm. And this, again, Bert is a very successful autistic adult Muppet who does all sorts of neat things. Julia is a kid autistic Muppet. These are the differences between the autistic adults and the autistic kids. Bert's no less autistic than Julia. It's just expressed in different ways because of all these different conditions. Right. And so did Sesame yeah. Street ever regret their partnership with Autism Speaks? Is that still going on today? It's still going on today. <gasps> yeah. ASIN uh, oh. uh, put up a big uh, a post saying how regrettable it is that Sesame Street has chosen to keep getting Autism Speaks funding and uh, dissolve their partnership. And ASAN oh. stopped working with Sesame Street, which is very unfortunate. Uh, but to this day, uh, Autism Speaks still funnels a lot of money to Sesame Street, which is very, very unfortunate because, again, it's it's one of those things because Sesame Street comes from such a position of enlightenment, such a position of equality, such a position of fighting for marginalized people to make lives better for marginalized people. And due to... You know, the needs of, you know... <laughs> Fucking capitalism ruins everything. Yeah. And, and that's... See, this is like how these systems are so intertwined. Because I can imagine being an executive, maybe not the decision maker at Sesame Street, but being an executive and knowing this is really messed up. But then also knowing we need the money and then knowing if I speak up for this, I could lose my job. So I'll just be quiet. And then like there we are supporting something we don't believe in because we really want a paycheck and we don't want our company to go out of business. And it's so there's so many interdependencies that how do we like break these cycles that reinforce biases against marginalized communities? Yeah. When autistic people find a special interest, they go deep and have a lot of knowledge, even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it. If you want to capture your spin in a book, check out Angela's work at differencepress.com, differencepress.com, and find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book. And, and this brings us to the, the biggest quote from that 100-day uh, kit. Autism Speaks says, quote, it's helpful to distinguish between accepting that your child has been diagnosed with autism versus accepting autism. Because they say you can accept your child has this diagnosis, but you don't have to accept autism. I banish thee from uh, from your birthday. Yes, you do. Yeah, because it's, it's like being possessed by an autism demon. 
Right. And it's, it's, I don't accept it. I will just see you as a neurotypical person and I will make it happen with my mind. I will make a vision board of you being normal. And the problem with this is that money speaks. They have access. They have uh, reach. They can. The, the one of their uh, uh, top executives is a member of the ad council. Oh, the Jesus. council that runs the ads. Right. So they have access. They have reach. They have voice. They have money, and therefore. When a lot of parents find out about autism, that's the first voice they hear. And they have a message, even as a nonprofit, they have a message that generates revenue for lots of people. So they're going to be supported by the pharmaceutical industry. Like they're going to be supported by people who make money off this stuff, inpatient treatments, things like that. Whereas like the, you know, love yourself, accept yourself, and learn your neurology. There's not a lot of people making money off of that. That's the thing. That's the thing. There is so much money to be made from, quote, curing the autism, Mm -hmm. but self-acceptance is free. There's no money to be made by accepting your child for who they are. There's no money to be made by finding other parents of autistic kids. There's no money to be made by finding that you're autistic and learning about your culture and listening to podcasts about Mm -hmm. autistic culture. There's no money to be made in any of this area, but there's lots of money to be made by here. Throw this at it and see if it cures it. Oh, that didn't cure it. Throw this at it and see if it cures it. Oh, that didn't cure it. And because if you have a hundred cures that don't work, you build them a hundred times and that gives you a lot of money. And you have a great client list you can keep coming back to for more. It's like the diet industry. Exactly. It's like diets don't work. Diets make you gain weight. We have lots and lots and lots of research, but they're fantastic for capitalism because if that exactly. diet didn't work, try the next one. It and also this, won't work. <laughs> yeah. And this is why I have no ill will to the parents who listen to this because they probably don't know any better. Right. They they were introduced by this. They don't hear stuff from actual autistic people. And, and again, there's a lot of people at Autism Speaks that vilifies autistic adults and says, quote, we don't understand because we're not extreme autism or, you know, whatever profound. have you. Because profound, profound autism. Enough. Because now that there's a bigger because now that autistic kids have grown up into autistic adults and are speaking out about this, there's a big push towards the profound autism diagnosis. So they still have a customer base. Mm, And that's the problem because it's all about the money. And as long as there's uh, this rampant capitalism that's causing people to look to cure us, we will never have acceptance and we'll never have equality. And that's That's not the Sesame Street vibe. Everybody loves each other on Sesame Street for who they are and for the personal differences. And they they accept each other for that. And this is one thing that I hope that you all who are listening are able to do. Share your knowledge, share your interests, because I'm, I'm willing to bet that if you're listening to a podcast called the Autistic Culture Podcast, you're at least marginally interested in that uh, autistic people can have a culture instead of need to be wiped from the face of the earth. Oh, yeah, I forgot. They were also into genocide for a bit because they uh-huh. wanted to they wanted to study the autistic genome and uh, uh, remove the autistic gene so that no more autistic people would ever be born. And when you get into eugenics, nice. that's, it's just one gene and we could just selectively remove that or not have those babies. Maybe if yeah. we, we could do testing. And then if they have that one gene, we'll just zap them. Exactly. And, uh, you know, anytime you get to eugenics, that's the bad guy side. Uh, much like, uh, like one of the creators of Sesame Street, John Stone, uh, you're in the good guy camp or the bad guy camp. And, uh, I, I see people as who are eugenicists in the bad guy camp, Mm. but, Mm. but anyway, Sesame Street, it, it will always, especially the older episodes, I, I love them to death. Bert is fantastic. Julia is indeed a great representation of the autistic people. So uh, go watch some Julia. Go watch some Bert and uh, enjoy Hang the autistic out with some culture. Pigeons. Exactly. <sighs> celebrate. That's the way. Celebrate the pigeons. Oh well, I I still love Sesame Street, but I have to say this episode leaves me a little bit bummed that it took such a dark turn. Yeah. 
I, do you think I that's hope- because Jim Henson is gone? Like, do you think there's a way he could have stopped that or would have stopped that? Given Jim Henson's life, uh, he he was a radical proponent of equality. The people in the workshop came from every possible background. Uh, there, there, he he was a great he was a great great influence, and I I would like to think that he would still fight. Jim Henson died because Michael Eisner harassed him about money. <laughs> Uh, he, See? he was in a capitalism again. Exactly. But wait, how, what's that story? I don't know this story. Oh, I know oh, Michael that, Eisner, oh. obviously head of Disney, not maybe the world's nicest human. So, so, uh, Jim Henson th- went, got to this point where he says, you know, I've got the most popular television series in the history of the world across. It's been translated into all these countries. He's worked with Sesame Street, who's been translated into all these countries. He's got a very successful Muppet Workshop. He wanted to focus more on avant-garde films like The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and all these other projects. Uh, And he said, but I really want the Muppets to be well taken care of. And Michael Eisner says, hey, because that's how Michael Eisner sounds. Hey, I'll take the Muppets off your hands. And he says, well, would you take good care of the Muppets and uh, have weekly series with them and make sure that my uh, puppeteers all have careers and everything? He said, yeah, just give me the Muppets. And he he tempted Jim Henson with like a, a career in Imagineering where Jim Henson would be able to design rides for Disney. And he'd never gotten to design rides for Disney before, so he was super hyped. So he developed this 3D Muppet attraction for Disney. I've been there, done it. Yeah. He, yeah. he designed it himself from the ground up. He was having great fun. This was all before Michael Eisner agreed to pay him. And he, he kept doing this. So Michael Eisner kept harassing him and harassing him and harassing him because Michael Eisner not only wanted the Muppets, he wanted the Fraggles and he wanted Sesame Street. And Jim Henson would not sell the Sesame Street characters because the Sesame Street characters would then be slaves to capitalism and they would not be able to be used for free for PBS. And he said that the Sesame Street characters needed that freedom, needed to be able to be educational and needed that. He would be willing to sell them the Muppets characters, the characters which are now owned by Disney. But Michael Eisner harassed him and harassed him and harassed him. And this is another thing about Jim Henson. He loved creativity. He was in the zone when it came to creativity and making new films and making new attractions. But he hated business. He hated the financial side of it. He, he needed other people to do it. And he said, well, if Disney took care of that, I could just do my own thing forever. But this is one of the things that he was so stressed out, he went into intense burnout. Mm. And this intense burnout brought on a strep infection. And because uh, Jim Henson was uh, wary of doctors, he did not get this strep infection treated. And uh, he died. And it was the stress and it was the burnout. I did not know that he died of something that like could have been cured. I just assumed he died of cancer or something. Yeah, it it could have been easily cured. It could have easily been avoided. And there's this great documentary on Defunct Land, a YouTube channel, about Jim Henson's life and about his intensity and about his creativity and about his special interests. And which... We'll probably be doing an episode of him in the near future because he's a great guy. He's one of my all-time idols. By every account, he was the most, one of the most gentle souls to ever walk the earth. There was a, if there was a pantheon of legendary gentle greatness, there would be Jim Henson, there would be Mr. Rogers, there Mm. would be Bob Ross, there Mm. would be uh, 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 Steve Irwin, all these people who are just very gentle souls. Mm. And he was one of them. And Michael Eisner was a ruthless capitalist. Mm-hmm. And we we just are not made for that kind of life. No. And Jim Henson died and left everything to his children. And they they still work in the field today. Uh, there's, there's new Fraggle Rock coming out. Hopefully, Frank Oz today is very, very disappointed in Disney Muppets because it doesn't have the raw energy and the counterculture heft Imagine that the that. original Muppets yeah. had. Uh, Frank Oz has this great documentary, Muppet Guys Talking, uh, where he talks with all the surviving Muppeteers at that point. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's 
uh, Jerry Nelson has since passed away too, but you know, that's, that's a whole nother story. Mm. But yeah, all these guys are sitting around talking about how great it was to be these, <laughs> the, these very dirty, cynical hippies back in the day that created a puppet show that would to completely tear down expectations and rebuild the world in a more fair and understanding way. And I think that we need that sort of dirty, cynical, hippie energy now to fight for equality for those who need it, because this is the way. Yes. And here we are. That's what we're doing, holding up our tiny little part of the sky, doing that. Exactly. So, Angela, uh, what was your favorite part of being autistic this week? I got to do a fun meta thing. Um, I saw a really cute meme that I wanted to copy, and it was uh, somebody made a list of their spins. They made a list of their top six special interests, and they were broken into five categories. Maybe it's five. One, two, three, four, five. I don't know. I can't count. Um, But that's six pictures. So here they are. The first one is, what's your biggest spin? So the biggest one, the longest one, the one that's been around forever. Do you have one? Me? Oh, my God. Uh, Star Wars, Ghostbusters, Legos, Transformers. He's like many, many. Okay, I pick books. I pick books for the big one. Then there is the comforting one. Oh, oh, God. Oh, what is the most comforting? Good. Oh, oh, God. Books or Legos? Oh, my God. I, I'm, oh. I'm sitting here surrounded by books and Legos. So I I can't tell because I I want to dive into a good book. And when I'm in doing Legos, I'm in total flow. But yeah, yeah. what's yours? Okay. I, went, I went for Crowded House, which is like my favorite band. And if I ever need like to regulate my emotions, I can put on Crowded House songs and they will eventually get me there. So that's good. Nice. Uh, okay, the next one is the weird one. What's your weirdest oh. spin? Weirdest spin? Oh, that my God. That you want to share on a podcast. What is going around here? Oh, my God. Uh, what is... Oh, I collect some weird, weird stuff. Like, uh, I would say paper clips for Bert would would definitely, like, count as the weird one. One what, what of my neat things is that... Yeah, there, there are, I have some really, I love collecting resin copies of really weird things like Ninja Turtles or uh, Frog Thor or, you know, I've got a, a shelf full of, that I call the Magical Mystery Shelf with my Gargoyle and uh, the Mothman from Point Pleasant and Dragons. Yeah, I've got some weird stuff, man. Okay. The stereotypical one. What is your most stereotypical spin? Uh, probably... Oh, Star Trek definitely. Uh, of the probably the books or the Legos. I don't know. Star Wars my, definitely because look at my lightsabers. My, yes, the, I think Star Wars might be it. So my most stereotypical one is um, Broadway musicals in general, but Hamilton, which oh, I have seen maybe a lot of. I've probably spent a hundred thousand dollars seeing Hamilton all around the world. <laughs> it's kind of a problem. And for literally five years, I listened to nothing else, like nonstop 24-7 Hamilton. I have moved on a little bit, but I still find myself on that one. Okay. The one that fades in and out. Oh, painting. Oh. Painting, because I, I I get into painting and I will paint hardcore for a couple of months and then I will burn out and then I go back to it. But my set of paints is sitting right here beside me with uh, my paint cup and my pet paints. Oh, oh, uh, uh, this is my uh, hedgehog paintbrush holder that uh, is supposed to be a toothbrush holder, but uh, the paintbrushes yeah. look like quills. So, yeah. yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so mine on that one, I went, I couldn't find, I'm like, I, lots will fade in and fade out, but they don't come back. Usually once I'm done, I'm usually done. So, um, but 
I am obsessed with building these super complex like spreadsheets and websites and but on like things that I'm researching. So it's the research that fades in and out. So for instance, like when I was house hunting in England, I can tell you every single thing. I have many spreadsheets like did mashups of like Google maps with public bathrooms in the towns I was thinking of moving to. Right now I'm doing a lot of college related spreadsheets and mashups. So it's the what the spreadsheet is about. Um, And then, okay, here's the last one. The one I wasn't expecting. (laughs) I want to be honest, after last week, My Little Pony. Yeah, okay, good answer, good answer. Um, I actually went out and bought some ponies after that because (sighs) I was like, I think I need to explore this a little further. So um, I need to dive into My Little Pony. Exactly. Um, Yes, I do. We do trivia. My husband and I do trivia every Thursday night and we had recorded Ponies Are Autistic and we got to trivia. And so listen, I show up at trivia and I always take other games with me so -hmm. that in between the trivia questions, when you're waiting for the answers, we can play other games because otherwise there's small talk. So I just take like dice games and card games and like word games and we'll just play other quick games in between playing trivia. So I'm the multi, I can multi-game at a time. But there was a brief moment of um, small talk at the beginning where everybody said, how was your day? And I'm like, I just learned a lot about My Little Pony. And (laughs) my, my trivia friends were like, bronies! And then they knew everything we covered. Every single thing. It was a little terror. I was like, guys, you've been holding out. I did not know. So, yes, I feel you on that one. My weird one is depressing after, um, actually, it was... It, it was during the Black Lives Matter protests, I sort of became obsessed with the second American Civil War and when that will be happening. So, yeah, yeah, that's the one I wasn't expecting. I was in I was definitely in some sort of oblivion. And I know a lot of I know a lot of people, especially from marginalized communities, were not in the oblivion that I was privileged enough to be in, but I am no longer there and now obsessing on the second American Civil War. Yeah. But I will tell you, I loved categorizing my spins. And one little fun fact on this, um, the I've I've done a lot of work with um, brain scans. Mm-hmm. And um, with a friend of mine who's super into neuroscience and um, there's like this, my brain scan looks very different than hers. Like she's neurotypical and because we go together, you can like see them. And there's this like part of my brain, we put on these skull, skull caps and um, then they test us. You have to do things like connect dots and things like that on a chart or like click a clicker when you see a light and they make you do things and it lights up different parts of your brain. And so there's this one part of my brain that like didn't light up. And what this part of the brain is, is the fusiform face area. And so they would show pictures of like your family Uh and it's supposed to light up this part of your brain. And this part of my brain didn't light up. So I'm like, am I actually a sociopath or narcissist? Because you could see Erica's was like wild. So then I'm doing this spins project that I gave myself when I saw this meme. And I noticed in one of the comments that in autistic people, the fusiform face area lights up when you see one of your spins. Yeah, I can see. I, I Yeah, uh, that, that was a frequent thing for uh, my, my son's mother did not understand that about me because I deeply, deeply relate to Optimus Prime and Yoda and Bert and these fictional characters uh, much more than uh, members of my human family. Right. Not, not that, like, it's not about, like, love it's just like a different connection to your spin. Like a lot of the needs that get met for neurotypicals by people are spins meet those needs. So it 
it feels the same. But if you think I'm talking about Hamilton or Crowded House or the Second American Civil War a lot, uh, I am because those are my friends. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Friends, family, fictional characters are spins. That fulfills it. Yeah. So that's my fun thing. Um, If you guys want to tell us your favorite spins, we'd love to hear them in the comments or just comment with your favorite Sesame Street character. Thanks, everyone. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast. If you like this show, you can help other people find it by taking a few minutes to rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about writing your book with me at differencepress.com. That's difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E, press, P-R-E-S-S.com. Or getting a psychological evaluation or consult with me at www.mattlowrylpp.com. That's M-A-T-T, Matt Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, L-P-P, as in Licensed Psychological Practitioner.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else.